ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on down to the Dispatch to check out all our wares. Um, and this is not Chris Starwald. Uh, thank you for indulging uh, us in running the first couple episodes of uh, Brother Starwalt's excellent new podcast series. Although I have not listened to the uh, the Eric Cantor episode yet. I listened to the Brookheiser one and the intro one. Midday yesterday, I get this text from uh, uh, the fair Jessica, my, my lovely bride. And it just says, tell Starwalt I don't appreciate him and Cantor pissing on young guns. Now, the backstory here is that uh, my wife was the ghostwriter for Young Guns, and um, I did not know what Starwalt and Cantor had actually said, but I texted a screen grab of that text to Starwalt, and um, um, he just sent me back one of those yikes emojis and, was, and then spent half the day apologizing and running back to listen to what he actually said and blah, 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 which I did not intend. I mean... Jess was a ghostwriter. It was a work for hire. Uh, and, um, and what Starwalt and Cantor said was not a diss on Jess in any way, but, um, I like making Starwalt feel uncomfortable about sowing marital discord. Regardless, uh, feedback so far on, on the hangover podcast is great. Um, and I'm looking forward to listening to the whole thing. And I think the future episodes will be great. So you should tune into that. And apparently Starwalt, some people were saying in the comments that Starwalt is emphasizing his West Virginia accent more, which helps them distinguish him from me. Um, we got money the last time, this last time he was on the remnant, we got a lot fewer, um, charges of auditory doppelgangerism. Um, sorry. Uh, uh, because people apparently either people have learned how to tell us apart, um, auditorily or he's changing his voice somehow. Uh, my euph- euphonious and dulcet voice remains unchanged. Um, so where to begin? It's uh, Friday morning, and I'm still not quite accustomed to doing these things in the morning because um, I haven't figured out what I want to think about um, quite yet. But uh, just starting from the easiest stuff, um, um, Matt Gates is making an ass of himself again. I know this is not a shocking headline. Uh, this is kind of like, uh, oh, in the eighties or early nineties, the new Republic's, uh, notebook section used to have this great, uh, contest for dullest headline ever, um, or dullest headline of the year. And I can't remember if it was all from one year or whatever. I mean, again, I was in high school. Um, and you know, I was day drinking, but, uh, the, I remember one of them, one of them was North Dakota stays out of the news again. Um, um, but another one was like, uh, Canada passes worthy initiative or something like that. And, um, I admit Matt Gates makes an ass out of himself is a more exciting headline, but it's also just not a surprising headline. And, uh, at some America first rally or, um, 
you know, or Poland belongs to us rally or whatever it was. Um, Gates was talking about how bad big tech is and how they're censoring us and they're intimidating, intimidating us or trying to intimidate us, but they'll never cancel us. They'll never cancel this rally. They'll never cancel this congressman because, you know, Matt Gates is so brave. And, um, and then he just segues into, um, from talking about the first amendment, he segues into, uh, talking about the second amendment and he said something along the lines of we have a second amendment in this country for a reason and i think we have an obligation to use it and in the context you know look i'm not a big people are inciting violence with speech guy um but kind of feels like he's inciting violence with speech to me i don't think there's any other reading of it um it's certainly not a responsible thing to say and um and it's going to get worse. But we, we can get back to all that in a second. I think I want to start with this thing about headlines because um, Ryan, when we were doing the prep for this thing, um, which basically meant trying to figure out why we couldn't hear each other a lot, um, I brought up that my columns, my column today is... Uh, um, the headline doesn't really reflect what it's about. Um, and you know, but then again, I don't write my own headlines and, and Ryan was like, well, why is that? Why don't you write your own headline or why don't pe- why don't writers write their own headlines? And it's a really good question. And, um, channeling my own father, I turned it around and said to Ryan, you know, you should really write that piece and go call around and find, you know, editors to explain why they won't let their writers write their own headlines and all that. Um, in my own experience, I've probably written the headline for my own article. I've probably won a negotiation about what the headline of my own article should be maybe 5% of the time. Um, um, which is not to say I couldn't have a, had a better percentage if I tried, but I generally, I don't, I generally don't even bother telling my syndication editor what the title I want is in part because uh, when the syndicated column goes out to other newspapers, other newspapers change the headline anyway. So what we put on it kind of doesn't matter. And over time, you just become so exhausted with losing these things that you're just like, eh, whatever they end up putting on it is what they're going to put on it. Um, I do think there's some interesting, probably some interesting history and sociology to all of it about why writers, um, I mean, I can see why reporters don't write their own headlines, but why opinion columnists almost never write their own headlines. And I suspect part of it is, is that this is one of the last sort of perks of being an editor where you get, you know, they they hold on to this as this key matter of editorial insight about, um, what the best possible headline is, though I suspect that some of it has changed in the era, era of clickbait. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's an interesting question. Um, but I, I've never met an editor um, who do, who would want to relinquish the ability to come up with the headline. They'll often ask for uh, suggestions because it's hard coming up with headlines. But um, almost all editors cling to it as if it's you know a key to the executive washroom or something like that. And so anyway, uh, the reason I, we were talking about my column was because Nick Pompella, who was drunk on the job again, hadn't read my column yet. And, um, um, 
And he was like, oh, I see it's about the lab leak thing. And then, yeah, it is. I mean, the, the headline says how the media botched the lab, the lab leak story or something like that. And the column is to a certain extent about that. But in, in, in an important way, it's the opposite of about that. And what I, what, I'm, what I was getting at is, you know, pretty much everybody in the last two weeks in all of this, all of a sudden it's okay to talk about the lab leak conversation where, you know, uh, you know, Jim Garrity and Josh Rogan are getting to say some, I told you so's certainly Tom Cotton is, um, Jonathan Chait and Matt Iglesias have, you know, done pretty good pieces talking, you know, sort of taking one for the team as it were for liberals who forced fostered this, uh, this sort of group think that, um, almost instantaneously rendered the lab leak story illegitimate. Um, and the one through line with, in all of this stuff is how, uh, an important, one of the most, one of the through lines in all of this stuff, one of the sort of consensus point observations is that the media was, um, so reflexively anti-Trump that they in effect lost their skepticism. And, you know, it's funny when you think about it, right? Cause like skepticism says, um, you know, the, the, the normal understanding for journalists about being skeptical is, you know, like, what is it? That Chicago, um, newspaper slogan. Um, if your mom tells you she loves you, check it out. Um, which has never really been the operating procedure of about 95% of the press. But the, the basic idea about it is, is don't believe anything until you can verify it, which is a good ideal for journalists. Um, but skepticism also kind of cuts the other way, right? In that the media was uniformly skeptical of everything that Trump said. And so even when Trump occasionally said true things, um, not only did they refuse to check out whether it was true, they worked from the assumption that it must not be true and went and just cherry picked some expert or some activist who could give some sort of fig leaf confirmation that they were right to assume that this was just another lie or fabrication um, from Donald Trump. And so, in a weird way, you can be so skeptical of of politicians that um you're actually skeptical that they could ever be right which is kind of a counterintuitive way to think about it and uh, i'm not saying that trump was right about the lab leak story uh but i do think you know this is a point that neil ferguson made on this podcast you know before this sort of change in the zeitgeist that the reflexive anti-trump attitude from uh reporters and uh, editors and news anchors and Democrats and, and, and lots of other people often led, um, people to make a lot of mistakes. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, but what bothers me about this entire story, uh, this, this, this entirely accurate complaint about why the media screwed up the lab leak story, which is a big screw up because of the media had given it more credence back when it was still, you know, a live issue, you know, in early January, uh, that could have conceivably created pressures to, uh, investigate when an investigation might lead to something beneficial. Um, it might've scared the Dickens out of the Chinese enough that they, 
um, were more transparent. Who knows? You can't really run the experiment backwards. So, I mean, it was a big screw up and the people who, um, you know, who didn't traffic in sort of crazy versions of the lab leak story that it was a bioweapon attack and all that nonsense. Um, they deserve to say, I told you so. And they deserve to say, you know, um, you know, you guys are part of the problem and all of that kind of stuff. My point here is not to defend the media in the slightest in any of this. Um, but what gets left, it's sort of like the sound of one hand clapping. What gets left out of this analysis when you talk about, um, how reflexive anti-Trumpism or reflexive Trump derangement syndrome or whatever, um, led to this kind of groupthink among the media, Democrats and, and all the rest. Um, it leaves out the fact that that's the world that Donald Trump created for himself. You can't go back and say, um, as I think I put it in the column, right? You can't go and, and rummage through the giant mess of the word salads that Donald Trump spewed for four years, looking for leaves, you know, looking to cherry pick the few cases where he was, he was right about something. Um, and say, see, this proves how he was treated so unfairly. This proves how, um, you know, the media never gave him a fair shot and all these kinds of things. Okay. It, first of all, the media gave him quite a fair shot because it gave him $2 billion worth of free media time to speak uninterrupted for hours and hours every week when he was running for president. Um, he got a, you know, you know, try to get a presidential rally to get filmed from beginning to end for any other presidential candidate prior to Donald Trump. And the idea that he never got any, you know, benefit from the media is just garbage, but it's true that the media, the mainstream media and what I'm saying by the media, I mean, like, you know who I'm talking about, New York post, I mean, not the New York post, New York times, the Washington post, MSNBC, CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, yada, yada, yada. But it's true. They hated him. Um, but they loved to hate him because he was good for ratings as the head of CBS put it and all that. Um, but you can't just go and like take some sort of, you know, temporal barium enema and illuminate the moments where, um, Trump was, was accurate. Uh, and, 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 re and he was never responsible in his rhetoric, but you can't illuminate the po points where he was, you know, he happened to be right and say, see, this proves that he was treated unfairly and he didn't deserve any of this stuff because he invited the scorn and the animosity of his opponents and of the press in particular, every single day of his presidency. You can't go around calling people evil and traitors and uh and frauds and liars and fake news and all of these kinds of things you can't traffic in unsubstantiated conspiracy theories and and misinformation constantly and then whine like a little girl or a little boy i don't want to be too gendered about this and then whine uncontrollably when it turns out that among the 10 billion monkeys banging furiously on typewriters in Donald Trump's head, a couple of them typed out something that was true. Um, this is, you know, this gets to a basic notion of statesmanship. Presidents are supposed to husband their credibility. They are supposed to be very careful not to be seen as someone 
who will willingly lie and deceive the American public for their own narrow self-interest, whether it's psychological in the case of Trump or political. And that's, that's why historically presidents have um, uh, surrogates to say the crazy stuff. That's why they send them, you know, they send their James Carvilles out to say, to say the wacky stuff because they don't want to spend down the, the social and political capital of the president and get them out there saying things that, that might have to be retracted or might get exposed as untrue or irresponsible. And Trump, because he always wanted to be a commentator more than an actual president, threw all of that away. You know, he used those, um, those pandemic or those co- coronavirus task force daily press briefings as uh, substitute rallies where he went up and he would yammer on about one thing or another and he would complain about the media and he would talk about things that weren't true and he promised Google was doing this, which was a lie. And he promised this and that and the other thing. He even talked about, you know, opening up people, opening up people and shining UV lights inside them and, and, and maybe applying disinfectants internally, which he later claimed was a joke. And if you watch the video, it's just obviously not a joke. Um, and anyway, my point is, is that by all means, let's beat up the media because the media is not supposed to be so easily baited. The media is not supposed to um, lose its cool in a way that they come to disregard the truth. But that is not an excuse for a president of the United States that deliberately and daily tries to elicit that kind of emotional hysteria from the press. So. Uh, you know, I know Trump is going around saying that this, he's vindicated because of the lab leak thing, which again, hasn't been proven. It's just now considered a legitimate line of inquiry. Um, and I think it's at least 50% likely that it's true, but, um, mostly for the reasons that Jim Garrity and others have, have laid out. Um, but, uh, that is, that is just, I think it's ludicrous to let Trump off the hook for that kind of thing. And I think it's, that kind of, you know, rhetorical approach to politics is why you've got these ass clowns like Matt Gates going around cavalierly talking about using the Second Amendment to stop people infringing on the First Amendment. And, and to a lesser extent, I mean, Ron DeSantis is an infinitely more serious politician in person than Matt Gates is. I would just say infinitely, but considerably more serious. Um, but like this, this social media law is just boob bait. It's just, uh, this attempt to, uh, say, at least I tried something, even though it's flagrantly unconstitutional. Um, and even though it's, you know, uh, at its core, not only is it flagrantly unconstitutional, it's, it's inherently corrupt in the way that we used to talk about picking winners and losers and no favors for big business because it just has a flat out carve out for Disney. And I get that. Disney's a huge employer in in Florida. I've been making jokes for years about like what could the head of Disney ask of the mayor of Orlando that the mayor of Orlando would say no to. And sometimes the jokes get a little blue so we won't um continue down that line here. But I get why there's a carve out for Disney in terms of rank cynical politics and all that. But it just shows, you know, between that and the fact that it's unconstitutional, um, it just shows that this idea of uh, providing red meat 
stuff instead of actually trying to do governing or solve problems is is all the rage now on the right. Phil Klein, uh, a friend who now is a managing editor at at NR, has a great piece um, about a lot of this stuff about how you know woke capitalism really is a big threat to um, conservatism and the old fusionist alliance. And you should read the whole thing. Um, but he ma- makes the point that, you know, it used to be that one of the, one of the bedrock principles of the right is that you don't play games, giving favors to corporations. You don't punish favorite corporations for their speech. Um, you li- you leave business alone without, you know, and let, let the market work. And, this is an old argument of mine is that too many Republicans thought being pro-business was the same thing as being pro-free market. And they're just different things because, uh, you know, everything from the export import bank to the Jones act to, um, Solyndra on the democratic side, these things you can make an argument were very pro-business because they were pro existing businesses. They were pro incumbent businesses or stakeholder businesses or the people who were at the table but they aren't pro market. And, uh, so this has always been a tension in, on the right and in politics in general, but it's making it, but the woke capitalism stuff, as Phil argues, is making it worse because we're in this time where people care more about, um, the sort of owning the libs, um, um, uh, symbolic politics stuff, culture war politics stuff than actual substantive things. And he makes the point that when Democrats passed a $1.9 trillion bill about the COVID relief thing, and I think it was in there that they tried to, uh, they pulled out the restrictions on uh, federal uh, monies for abortion. Uh, A lot of the right was screaming a hell of a lot louder about Dr. Seuss and that stuff than they were about, you know, like this thing, which is at the cornerstone of a lot of social conservative, um, beliefs about, you know, government and all of that. It was just sort of, it wasn't sexy. And so people didn't talk about it. Ron DeSantis is trying to do uh, politically sexy things that are, um, utterly, you know, insupportable and indefensible on the merits of governance, but they'll get a lot of hits, you know, on Breitbart and, and, and a lot of spots on talk radio and Fox news. And, um, and that's a huge problem. But anyway, the, the, one of the things, because uh, I don't want to get into all that. Um, one of the things about the Klein piece I like a lot is that it got me thinking about how, um, and I just read it this morning. Um, you can kind of, I, I, I'm having an easier time seeing how progressive, the progressivism of the progressive era was. Um, how you could see how there were, you know, you could see it as, as, as there being a right left divide within progressivism, even though if you're, if you're reading about it, um, essentially a hundred years later, it seems like they're all just left wing statists. And this was always one of the things that I found, you know, very difficult to get my head around, uh, when I was working on my first book is people kept telling me, oh, you got to go look at the old right to understand all of this stuff. You got to look at like JT Flynn and, and, and all these guys who were, and Albert J. Nock and, and all these kinds of things. And 
the problem was is that a lot of people who were called old right were um not right wing by any definition that we really have today um some of them were like hardcore libertarian types you, you make the case about knock and mencken and that kind of thing but some of them were just you know by my lights populist um left wingers man i just i mean like this guy jt flynn who's like very famous back in his day wrote a column from the new republic called other people's money he was one of the founders of uh, the america first committee um and you know he was i you, know, you can find places all over the place of him referred to as one of the founders of the old right and then you read his stuff and he's like attacking fdr from the left um, sort of, you know, this is again, like my bugaboo about father Coughlin, you know, the right wing radio priest I kept hearing about all my life, which was proof about the historic role of anti-Semitism on the right. And then you go back and you look at what father Coughlin was talking about. And I, I, I see no, unless you want to just define anti-Semitism as right wing, which a lot of people are trying to do these days, um, to fend off all the left wing anti-Semitism out there. Um, uh, uh, I can't find anything in Father Coughlin's record that feels right wing, or let me put it this way, prior to 2016, 2015, that felt particularly right wing to me. Um, first of all, he endorsed FDR. It's Roosevelt or Ruin, he used to say. He used to say the New Deal is Christ's deal. Um, he was a populist rabble rouser, but he was defended by the the the, the brain trust crowd as... Um, uh, the famous line from this guy, Father Ryan, um, was he's on the side of the angels because he was supporting FDR and all that. And then by the mid-30s, Coughlin breaks with um, FDR and um, says it because it doesn't go, because the New Deal isn't going far enough. And he falls in with the sort of demagogic populist rabble of the sort of Huey Long and um, Francis Towson and those guys variety. Um, he forms national union of social justice. I think that's the right title. Um, and, uh, and puts out, you know, stuff talking about, um, you know, how FDR is a tool of the capitalists and the Jews and, um, uh, and, and it is calling for like nationalization of industry and all these kind of things. And yet he got called right wing all the time. And it still bothers me because he, he, if you want to call him right wing in the context of say the 1930s, um, or if you want to call Flynn right wing in the context of the 1930s and the 1920s, we can have that conversation. But, uh, from the perspective of sort of 2008 or 2015 conservatism, there just really wasn't a lot right wing to them. And yet, you know, conservatives, this is, you know, I've written a lot of these, a lot about this over the years. Uh, Ramesh and I did a fun piece together about this once. Um, one of the things that is always, I've always found frustrating is the way in which conservatives are expected to own their intellectual history entirely while, um, liberals have no such obligation. And, um, you know, I mean, the example I always used to give was from the 2008, uh, presidential election where Hillary Clinton was asked during one of the CNN debates, what is a liberal and are you one? And, um, and Hillary's definition, which is one of the things that 
the Phil Klein thing reminded me of was Hillary's definition was something along the lines of, well, liberal used to mean standing up for the individual against big power, but now it's come to mean something else. And that's why I don't call myself a liberal anymore. I call myself a modern progressive, which is a term that has deep roots in the American tradition, something along those lines. And, um, uh, and I always used to ask, you know, what if Mike Huckabee was asked, uh, what is, um, uh, a conservative and Huckabee said, well, conservative used to mean this, but now it means that. So that's why I don't call myself a conservative. I call myself a neo-confederate, which is a term that has deep roots in the American tradition. Um, people would go and berserk and lose their mind. Don't they understand what he's conjuring? Don't they understand the connotations of what Confederate means and blah, 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 blah. And, and to a certain extent, they'd be right to, which is one of the reasons why it broke my heart to see so many people utterly forgive Trump for embracing America first and all of those other terms. Um, but, you know, the progressives that Hillary Clinton was invoking they have a rich intellectual political tradition in our country too they were you know the most pronounced and aggressive eugenicists uh they were um in many cases the people who uh depending on where you're talking about and who you're talking about because some some you know there were divides on this stuff but although they were pretty much all eugenicists to one extent or another um uh but some of them like woodrow wilson you know uh did enormous water carrying for Dixiecrats and segregationists. A lot of them were segregationists. A lot of them were, you know, theocrats of one kind or another. Um, but there's this sort of a, just this assumption that the left or that liberals in America don't own the sins of uh, their intellectual forebears the way that conservatives do. And I mean, I cannot, tell you how many pieces because i i'm really interested in conservative intellectual history can't tell you how many pieces i've read over the last 25 years by liberals explaining to me what conservatism means and, and cherry picking and quoting conservatives and pretending that they have this you know this this absolutely superior grasp of the intellectual history of conservatism and then when i write about the intellectual history of liberalism the general response from a lot of smart liberals well who cares and some of the, you know, and I write about this in my underrated second book, Tyranny Clichés, but um, some of this has to do with the sociology of liberalism versus the sociology of conservatism. Um, there's a really interesting passage in one of E.J. Dion's books where I believe it's in there that he's talking about David Brooks, but maybe he keeps his identity secret, but I've, I'm now, I'm outing David Brooks as his interlocutor in there, um, where David asks EJ, you know, well, who, who, do you, who do you wear on your tie? And, um, you know, what he meant by that was who are the leaders of your intellectual tradition that you see as your sort of lodestars? And EJ gives a very thoughtful and honest answer. And he says, well, liberalism just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, cause like what, what Brooks was pointing to was how, you know, conservatives, you know, they're conservatives who wear their Adam Smith ties, they're conservatives who wear their Hayek ties, or their Mount Pelerin Society ties, or their Edmund Burke ties, 
um, their Heritage Foundation ties. You know, they're all these, you know, there's this weird, extremely freaking dorky subculture of right-wing eggheadery in Washington over the last, you know, 30 years where people would, would do that kind of stuff. Not just Washington, but sort of think tank, the sort of think tanky universe um, and conservative intellectual, professional conservative intellectual movement universe. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. And I like that stuff. I like, you know, this is one of the reasons why I've always, until 2015, pref- preferred, you know, how we do things because uh, conservatives talk about our dogma. Conservatives talk about where the conflicts are between our principles. And as Dion points out, that's just not how the liberals, again, as a gross generalization, are wired. They're more looking to the future. Their heroes are more activists than they are intellectuals. You know, you hear a lot more for understandable reasons about, say, Martin Luther King than you do about, you know, I don't know, John Dewey um, or Rawls or any of these kinds of people. You know, um, meanwhile, conservatives sociologically talk about ideas. And, um, and because conservatism is supposed to be concerned with preserving the traditions of the past, um, and, and passing on, you know, the sort of what Chesterton called, you know, said democracies, uh, uh, that tradition is democracy for the dead. Um, conservatives need to be in the business of looking backward a little bit because we're the ones who say we need to conserve the principles of the founding. And if we don't have an intellectual, an intimate intellectual relationship with, you know, whether it's Russell Kirk's wisdom of the ancients or, or just simply the founding fathers or the, you know, the, the founders of the conservative movement, um, it becomes very difficult to do that. And I mean, again, I think that's a lot of that is coming to an end these days and it makes me sad, but, um, but anyway, how'd I get on this? All right. So the, the, my point is if you, you know, Klein makes this point that conservatives now are buying into this idea very much like what Hillary Clinton's answer to what does liberalism mean that basically we should not see distinct, we should not distinguish between government power and private sector power that if corporations are treating us badly, we should do something to corporations to make them stop. Even if it's not necessarily constitutional, JD Vance says he doesn't care if it's constitutional. Um, and not if it's good or bad for the economy. I mean, Marco Rubio wants to punish, wanted supported unionization at Amazon Warehouse, not because of uh, the workers and not because of Amazon's treatment of the workers, but because, as he said, Amazon was becoming too woke and conservatives need to punish him for it. And that is a very old school, progressive way of thinking about the role of power. And um, and you know, so there's this guy, he's a, he's a federalist guy, but he was writing for Fox opinion, something Marcus met him once. Um, he had this absolutely ridiculous piece for Fox opinion this week talking about how these third party fact checkers that some of the social media platforms use. Um, and apparently some of them really are terrible and egregious and, and they deserve the criticism they're getting. I'm not trying to defend them, but his argument is that they're so egregious and offensive that the federal government should now um, regulate the fact checkers as if this is a, um, first of all, as if this is kind of like a new idea. No, never before has anyone ta- thought about the government 
going in and policing people uh, to stop saying things that we don't like. I mean, I, I like to think that some of these arguments have been settled. Um, and Klein alludes to this kind of thinking in there. And it, it, anyway, it just seems to me that when you inject enough populism into an actual intellectual movement, it turns into uh, a form of progressivism. And because if you don't, if, if you don't think the distinction between the private sector and the public sector is a meaningful one, um, then basically you are for using power wherever you can, whenever you can to get the stuff that you want. And there's no limiting principle or guiding principle to it. And, um, I, anyway, it, it, it's the kind of thing I haven't thought about a lot about the progressive era for a long time because I haven't been written, writing about it for a while, but it feels like basically what we're getting is a regression to the old progressive era consensus where you had basically two parties, both of which were different flavors of statism. And, um, and there were a few people who, um, were outside of that consensus and they were generally considered to be cranks to a certain extent. I mean, I don't think that people like me are considered to be cranks, but it's not by accident that this podcast is called the remnant and that this very consensus that I'm talking about, about the, you know, the idea of using power where you can and when you can, um, to, uh, achieve your ends and mold society as you want it. Um, that is the, that is the consensus that Albert J. Nock was fighting against when he wrote, you know, that essay about Isaiah's job and, and about the remnant. And, um, and it just seems to me that kind of stuff is unfolding. Um, where to go from here? Oh, so, um, it, I, I'm still thinking this through and I might write the G file about this today if I can get my ideas in order. So uh, if I see how I'll, I, I do here. Um, so I was reading this piece at the bulwark by this guy, Jonathan Tate, who's an interesting historian. I got no major beef with, with him, um, where the title of it is something like, um, uh, anti-democracy is not a new idea for conservatives or something along those lines. Um, I suppose I should find it, but, um, um, anti-democratic conservatism isn't new. He writes, and he's right. It's not new. And, um, uh, and this reminds me, I mean, I, I kept meaning to go back to Will Wilkinson's, uh, piece about how I'm wrong for not being majoritarian enough, which I found to be very interesting and, uh, and a bit of a bait and switch because he was responding to a minor point of mine without addressing the major point at all. At least that's my recollection. Um, and I don't remember him actually persuading me I'm wrong. I just think he, you know, he gave me some interesting things to chew on, but I got to go back and look at it because I, I haven't read it since it came out a couple, a while ago. Uh, but I guess we can put it in the show notes. Um, uh, so the, the, there's this weird, uh, this is the idea that I'm thinking about. There is the, there, there seems to be a kind of moral panic, um, going on on the right and the left. And, um, we all know if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, we all know the basic contours of the panic on the right. 
uh, that they, you know, are uh, stealing the country to some extent. That you know the 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 whether it's the immigrants and the critical race theorists and all these kinds of you know I, again I don't want to get deep in the weeds, but I think you probably know where I'm coming from when we talk about a certain kind of moral panic that a slogan like "Make America Great Again." Uh, would feed into. I think left-wing chroniclers and analysts of all this um, are right to point out the racial aspects to it, but they also overemphasize the racial aspects to it because the left right now overemphasizes race in all affairs and in every way. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not that they're entirely wrong about the racial component of it on the right, but they exaggerate it. And, um, you know, as I like to say, you can only exaggerate the truth, uh, cause you know, an exaggerated lie is just more of a lie. Um, and then, um, but on the left, part of the panic obviously is just simply the right is scary. Um, and that, um, you know, I, I heard someone, maybe it was on the editor's podcast say that, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez said we were just an hour away on January 6th. We we're just an hour away from not being a democracy anymore, which I don't think is true. I think I take a backseat to very few people about how terrible I think January 6th was. I think Trump should have been impeached for it. I think there, there should be a commission. Although if, if I could, if Congress actually could do a select committee and do it properly, that wouldn't bother me very much, but I definitely think it should all be investigated. And I think that there are people in Trump's orbit who should probably be in jail um, because of some of the stuff that happened on January 6th or that led up to it. Uh, so, you know, I get why people are upset about all that. But I do not believe that we were an hour away from Trump being installed as a new president. Um, if you just start playing out, you know, what would happen if Pence had gone along with this attempt to intimidate him into stealing the election, which he was clear about from the from, from early on, he was not going to do. So it wasn't like the mob was going to put a, put a gun to his head or something like that. Um, and it's not like the country would see that as legitimate. Um, uh, nor would the state legislatures that these the electoral votes were being sent back to say, Oh, okay. Well, I mean, you know, I know Pence had a gun to his head, but he signed the the paper. So there you go. We, our hands are tied. I don't think that would have happened either. It kind of reminds me how, you know, how the King, um, in the lead up to the glorious revolution, um, I, I would name the King, but I would be so terrified of getting it wrong. Um, I'm, I'm really bad at remembering like which Louis and which Richards and which Charles's or which, um, but anyway, the King in the lead up to the glorious revolution, um, or during the glorious revolution, he had this theory that, which was totally understandable, um, that you needed some seal, uh, you know, I guess like some stamp or something to, um, validate laws. And his, his idea was, well, <laughs> since this thing is the only thing with the power to validate a law or validate, uh, you know, kingly directives, if I throw it in the Thames, um, then these usurpers will be powerless to do anything because, you know, they won't have it. And there was this 
know, it, it was kind of, it's kind of funny to me because it's like, you can kind of understand why this would seem reasonable. Like if this had been the truth for a thousand years and you essentially imbued this thing with magical properties, um, and said that, you know, that, that there was some sort of abracadabra function to this thing. And then you drew it away. You could say, ah, those fools, they'll never be able to pass laws now. And it turns out, of course, it doesn't have magical properties and people in power could pass laws without it. Um, Similarly, the whole idea like Mike Pence could single-handedly hand the presidency back to Trump um, has, you know, it works on this assumption that there's sort of magic, there's magical powers at work here. Um, and that's just not how things work in, in reality. But anyway, the point is, is like, enough about the January 6th stuff. The, the talking about you hear constantly um, which this piece of the uh, bulwark by Jonathan Tate f- feeds into is that conservatives are turning on democracy, that they're anti-democracy. And um, I think that's sort of a mischaracterization of what's going on. Um, you know, I mean, there was this really weird kind of awkward moment where, um, where Jonathan Swan asked Liz Cheney about voter integrity bills and how um and voter id bills and and how could she still support those while complaining about january 6 and for a lot of people including you know some of my 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 my, my never trumpier friends than um you know out there uh they see the connection between January 6th and all of these bills um, across the country about election integrity and all that kind of stuff as inextricably linked and um, and um, indivisible. And there is obviously a lot of truth to that. I mean, it de- but it depends on which bills you're talking about. Um, and it depends on what people are actually trying to do. You know, I, I, I for every time I have heard Nicole Wallace or somebody else on MSNBC you talk about the 47 states where they are trying to, you know, restrict democracy or curtail democracy or destroy democracy in accordance with the big lie. Um, the number of, it has to be a thousand times more than I've heard anybody explain what is actually in 45 of these 45 states legislation. I mean, I, I know about the stuff in Arizona and it's garbage. I know about the stuff that they tried to get into the Georgia law but it didn't get in i mean the the georgia law is passed is pretty defensible as far as i'm concerned and what a lot of people seem to have lost sight of is a lot of this um stuff about voter integrity bills is just an attempt to appease the republican base to prove that republicans are taking trump's bs about the election being stolen seriously but they're not actually doing nearly, you know, they're not reimposing Jim Crow ac- across the country. And, and in fact, but the, the more important point is the, I'm unaware and I'm constantly on the lookout for um, this kind of thing. I'm unaware of any of these MAGA heads um, talking about democracy itself being bad. Um, some of them, you know, some of these state legislators are saying, I think, indefensible things about how they want to, you know, restrict access and all this kind of stuff. But rhetorically, 
Um, and conceptually, they're all talking about how democracy is good. They just want to have faith in democracy. I'm not defending them. I'm just saying that the panic that you get on the left is describing arguments that the right is not making. And you're free to condemn <clears throat> a lot of the things the right is doing. But if you actually listen to what <clears throat> a lot of these conservatives are saying, they're not saying democracy bad. Um, we got to get rid of democracy. Even to a certain extent, Donald Trump's not saying that, right? He's saying he won. He's saying that the, that the, the, the crime here was that democracy was thwarted because he was the legitimately elected president and the other side cheated. And that's just factually a different argument than saying that conservatives are anti-democratic. And I personally think there is a perfectly good case for voter ID laws. Now, you can disagree with me or you can say it depends on the details, but when I hear people say, you know, and I've been having this argument for a very long time, well, you don't understand there are millions of people who don't have identification. To which I say, that's a scandal. Let's get them identification. You know, because, you know, life is pretty difficult. Navigating yourself around the modern economy is pretty difficult without any ID. Right? You know, it's not just like you can't drive, right? Because by definition, if you have a driver's license, you have ID. It's very difficult to get a credit card or open a checking account or get a lease. Um, you know, you are basically, you know, SOL if you have no ID in this country. And it seems to me as a sort of good progressive, how, how to help people on the outskirts of, of our society who lack opportunity, one easy, you know, even before getting someone a shave and a haircut and a new suit, getting them ID would be super helpful. And, um, and if they have ID, then what is the objection to voter ID laws? And you can say, well, they're not necessary because there's not that much fraud. Fair enough. I think that, you know, uh, I've never said that there was mass fraud in this country. I think the only time fraud ever is an issue is when it is a very close election and very narrowly contested in a specific place. And even then, you know, with the exception of what that Minnesota stuff and one or two other things, it's very difficult to point to anything that actually really mattered. Um, but I think we all agree that giving people confidence that the elections were, are, are fairly and honestly conducted is a legitimate thing. And so I, I think you can make a on the merits case that has to do with good government and faith in democracy for voter ID. I'm not saying that you have to agree with me. I'm just saying that it doesn't make me anti-democratic or racist or, you know, or championing Jim, Jim Crow to say that I'm very sympathetic to voter ID laws. And the problem is, is that, you know, so when Liz Cheney says she believes in some stuff like voter ID laws, people say, well, how can you say that? Because on January 6th, the, they tried to steal an election. And I just don't think the connective tissue is nearly as strong. Obviously, there's some stuff there, but there's just not nearly the, the connective tissue that, that liberals um, and, and, and some of these, you know, save democracy anti-Trump types um, see, I think they're begging the question to a certain extent on all of this. And, um, and so you have this weird kind of moral panic where you have a lot of people on the right saying that the elections are corrupt, that our democracy is being stolen. And then you have a lot of people on the left saying, um, our elections, um, aren't corrupt, but these corrupt people are trying to steal them. And, um, 
obviously I think the left is more right about the criticisms of Trump and all that kind of thing. But at the same time, the right hasn't turned its back on democracy the way these people constantly say. I mean, you can't just simply describe what people are doing as uh, motivated by hatred of democracy when you ask them why they're doing stuff and they say because they want to save democracy. Um, yeah, at least have to ask some follow-up questions. And, and then there, so this, then this gets the more philosophical thing about democracy in general. If I remember it right, you know, Wilkinson thinks that I'm not a strong defender of democracy because I like the illiberal or anti-democratic or non-democratic elements of the constitution. Um, and, uh, meh, I, I, I just, I've heard this before. He, again, I, I probably should have gone back and read that thing before I, I, I start bringing it up because I don't want to mischaracterize his, his position. But um, um, I, if I recall correctly, part of his argument um, is just simply that the anti-democratic things, elements like the filibuster and the nature of the Senate, by keeping majorities out of their rep full representation, they aren't um, allowed to be in the conversation about the rights that I think should be protected. And, uh, I find that to be just really unpersuasive in part because the whole point of my, my take when I wrote before was that we have a really weird political culture on the left these days that talks about majoritarianism all of the time. Um, and yet wants all sorts of anti-majoritarian policies. Um, in terms, you know, African-Americans are, I think I'm right, 14% of the U.S. population. Um, and uh, there, and whites are either, I don't know, 70% or 78%, depending upon whether you include Hispanics who call themselves white. Um, and if the argument is, is that, um, that institutions need to be wholly majoritarian, and that identity politics is a, is a healthy and positive way of organizing society um, and, and directing our politics, it seems to me that that is a really short-sighted view argument from the left. But anyway, I'm sure this is all confusing because I'm, I'm quoting this stuff really from memory. My basic problem with, um, you know, the, my, my, so how to put this, you know, you hear this thing all the time about, um, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Um, this is one of the more, I wish I had focused on this when I was doing tyranny cliches, um, and maybe I even got this wrong because I've thought more about it in the decades since. But um, this is one of the weirder, more uh, wrong <laughs> ways to conceive of things. Um, in part because at the time of the founding, and certainly going back, the way we understand democracy today is the way they understood the word republic. And I think it's, I think it's Madison who says, you know, you know, democracy is what you do um, when the people directly govern themselves, and therefore it can only work in very small places 
right? It's participatory democracy is, is when you don't elect representatives to do stuff for you. You do it yourselves. And that's democratic. And that gets sort of to one of the points that, you know, Rousseau makes about how even his ideas about the general contract and the, and the, and the proper functioning of true democracy and all that garbage, um, was he didn't think any of it would work in a place bigger than Geneva. Um, and so what the founding fathers believed was that, you know, look, let's, let's put it this way. If you were in Europe in the 1700s and you called yourselves, you said you wanted a republic, that meant you wanted to get rid of the king and have democratic rule. Um, Republican government was seen as what we would call democratic government back then. It wasn't seen as the sort of liberal, but, you know, uh, statist kind of thing that you kind of mean by Republic these days. Um, you know, in other words, when people say we don't live in a democracy, we live in a Republic, they might as well be saying we don't live in a democracy. We live in a democracy because they're essentially synonymous terms. And so what Madison was saying is that the, the real difference between pure democracy or direct democracy, whatever his term was, which was sort of small local people governing themselves by themselves. Um, he says, when you try to scale that up, you get Republican form of government where the small pockets of pure democracy elect representatives who go to either the local government or the state government or the federal government to represent the people who elected them still democratic, right? They're, they're, they're both democratic functions. And I think what a lot of people, including a lot of well-meaning people mean when they say we don't live in a democracy, we live in a Republic. What they really mean is, is that there are limits on our democracy that are enshrined in the constitution. And we shouldn't forget that to which I say, I agree entirely. Um, I, you know, I'm with Calvin Coolidge who said one with the constitution on a side or one with the law on a side is a majority. Um, you know, Wilkinson doesn't like this because he thinks that, um, the way you get, um, uh, you know, that, that there are no, in, there are no timeless inalienable rights found in nature or outside of ourselves. They are artifacts of politics that we are that we fight over that are contested on a daily basis. And therefore when you have anti-majoritarian institutions that are controlled by minority coalitions, it's even more terrible because these people aren't allowed in the conversation to contest what it means to have rights and, and whatnot. And I just, again, totally unpersuaded by, by all of that. I think that first of all, if you're talking about representation in our institutions, uh, minority factions and my, and literally like minorities are overrepresented, overrepresented in their influence and arguments than their sheer numbers would suggest. And, um, moreover, I don't think that what rights mean are nearly as contested as, as some people do. I think that, you know, the right to freedom of worship, the right to freedom of speech, the right to bear arms, yeah, these things are contested, but they are contested within some fairly narrow constraints. And I don't think getting rid of the filibuster um, or making the Senate um, 
as representative, quote unquote, as the House would change any of that. Um, and so what bothered me about the, the Tate piece at the Bulwark, which is why I started talking about this at the beginning, is just simply that going back and pointing out how conservatives over time have made some of these arguments about how um, pure majoritarianism runs up against other goods like the liberal nature of our constitution um, doesn't mean that they are lending aid and comfort to whatever Trump is doing vis-a-vis -vis the big lie or even what they're doing vis-a-vis -vis these various state you know, legislative efforts, which you know, again, I'm perfectly open to the idea that they're all terrible, except you know, I don't think the Georgia one was terrible. And I think the stuff they were trying to do in Arizona was terrible, but I don't know what they're doing in the other 45 States. I can, I'll, I'll look into it, but you would think the people who are so confident that it is evil and terrible and, you know, and built into the big lie would relish the opportunity to explain why. And yet you never hear it. It's just sort of taken for granted that that's the case. And if I say to you, um, look, uh, I think, um, I have a right to free speech, even if 60% of the American people tried to vote it away. Um, that doesn't mean I'm anti-democratic. It just means I value other things in our, our, our constitutional order, in our liberal democracy. I mean, the liberal and liberal democracy doesn't just refer to 51% get to vote however they want over 49%. It is a system of institutions that are layered upon each other. These institutions are both political and conceptual. And, um, and the idea that uh, you can't have uh, less reverence for pure majoritarianism than other people does that, uh, without being called anti-democratic, I just think is wrong. Because when we talk about democratic countries, we do not necessarily mean ones where they're, they're pure plebiscitory democracies. You know, one of the points I keep making when people, you know, say oh, no other country in the world has anything like the electoral college and blah, 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 you know, fair enough, but also no other advanced country in the world directly elects a president with similar power to, uh, to our president under our constitution without a lot of mediating you know, filtering mechanisms along the way. I mean, Germany doesn't do that. France doesn't do that. They have prime ministers who are elected, you know, popularly and all that kind of stuff, but you're electing a party and those parties have pretty strict rules about who's the nominee going to be and how are they selected and how are they vetted? Um, the, you know, this idea that we are somehow anti-democratic in this country because we have some of these layers and procedures in there, I'm just not persuaded by. And, you know, there, I get, weird scorn from people when I say that I would rather live in a country that was non-democratic, but wholly and completely committed to uh, a classical liberal understanding of government than a country that was purely democratic and had no such commitment. Now, I don't want to live in either because I think one of the important parts about democracy, about elections and all of that, is that it keeps government, you know, on its toes and keeps government from moving in, you know, authoritarian directions. And it is an important mechanism for 
guiding the government to be responsive to people's needs and desires and the, the views of the country and all that. I, mean, I, I think democracy is very important. I just don't think it's all important. I think there are competing priorities. And, um, and more, the more I see about, you know, the sort of the, there's this, this egghead argument out there that to point this out means that in some way you were lending aid and comfort to Trump and Trumpism and his authoritarian power grab and his attempted self-coup and all this kind of stuff. And I just don't see it. I'm not persuaded by it. Um, if people want to point me to a good piece that makes this connection more um, specifically, that would be great. All right. So I've, I've gone along here. I'm trying to see what else. Um, I should talk. I should have talked a little bit about my um, Wednesday G file, which got a lot of nice reaction and David sort of carried on um, about the role of crime. Um, I think crime, you know, I grew up in New York in the 1970s and eighties and um, you know, my experience of crime is very different from even a lot of Americans who grew up in the 1970s and eighties elsewhere. Um, and, uh, and I think that anyway, I, you, if you're a subscriber, if you're a member of the dispatch community, you can go read it. Um, I, it's, it's gotten too long here to start my long diatribe about it. Um, but if I was going to leave you with one point from it, it's just simply this is that aside from crime, violent crime in particular, but even petty crime like shoplifting, um, the, the, you know, the problems with crime are first of all, you know, first and foremost, the moral issues about, you know, the violation of the victims. Um, but it is also important to note and, and to understand that crime falls disproportionately on the backs of the poor and the disadvantaged. And this just isn't, this doesn't mean just in terms of how they're vastly more victimized by crime than affluent or middle-class people are, but they are, you know, poor people are raped more than rich people. Poor people are robbed more than rich people. Um, poor people are killed more than rich people. Um, uh, but it's also that the, you know, there's a, there's a good, there, uh, at least some listeners are probably familiar with um, Bastiat's uh, The Scene and the Unseen. It's this famous story about the window. You know, there's a scene where a window gets broken and someone says, oh, this is great. This is going to give money to the window makers, the glaziers, to make a new window. And, and Bastiat says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, what you're missing is, is that the money that the person who, you know, the baker, whoever it was, who has now spend that money on the window can't um, spend that money on something else, right? On hiring a new assistant baker on, on this, that, or the other thing. And uh, this is a perennial important lesson in economics that, uh, you know, you, it's very easy to create jobs by destroying value or destroying capital and forcing people to spend money, new money on replacing it. And, you know, which is what some of the green energy job stuff is, is that we are destroying more efficient and more productive forms of energy and replacing them with less efficient and less productive forms of energy. And then we're celebrating all the jobs that we're creating. And this is, you know, we don't have to have that full policy conversation right now, but there's a similar seen and unseen problem when it comes to crime. Um, crime is just a, is a vicious tax on poor people. Um, and again, not just in terms of the fact that they're victims of it, but because, um, 
the the consequences of crime put poor people at ever at, at at greater disadvantages than they do for the middle class and the affluent. Um, crime torn neighborhoods don't have good grocery stores. They don't, you know, national chains aren't going to move into those places. Um, uh, and as a result, it takes more time and money, um, and, and more risk to be able to just get the basic necessities of life for poor people than it does for, you know, wealthier people. The, I quoted this story from the San Francisco Chronicle in the G file about, um, you know, the just rampant epidemic of shoplifting in, in San Francisco, where Walgreens has closed something like 17 stores over the last five years because shoplifting is just out of control in, um, in the Bay Area. And part of it has to do with laws and failure to enforce and all these kinds of things. But, you know, as, as inconvenient as having all of these items under lock and key when you go to Walgreens or CVS is for middle-class people, um, closing down the nearby pharmacy and forcing old poor people um, to walk an extra 10 blocks on, with their walker and their cane, putting them themselves um, at, at, at physical risk, not just from, for the health risks of doing that, but from crime is cruel and evil. And this idea that getting rid of police and getting rid of and no longer enforcing small crimes is somehow some great boon to um, poor and minority communities is so unbelievably condescending and, and myopic. Um, there's so much noblesse oblige, you know, let them eat cake. Don't get me started on that phrase um, to it because first of all, most minority communities want to have police. Most minority communities want be free from crime. Um, they don't want police abuses. That's fine. But when the, you know, the elite media, the affluent elite media treats crime as if it is some stupid culture war, barbaric right wing concern, they are, um, not only making uh, life easier for law and order Republicans that they despise, but they're actually making the lives of actual poor minority people worse. And, um, and that's because they're, you know, as terrible as George Floyd was and as much as Derek Chauvin deserves to go to jail. Um, if you only focus on the scene, um, you forget about the unseen. And if, if in a strictly Benthamite utilitarian sense, if you got rid of cops tomorrow or just simply, you know, pulled cops back, dramatically so that he didn't get out of their cars when they got 911 calls until they were sure um that they weren't going to get in trouble or whatever um more black people would be hurt more minority people would be hurt more poor people would be hurt that in net net it would make the country a worse place and the costs wouldn't just be in lost lives and in the victims it would be in the organization of society to deal with these kinds of threats and um Anyway, enough about all that. Um, um, don't, by the way, um, use your Second Amendment rights to um, uh, address your First Amendment concerns with big tech. I just want to put that out there since Matt Gates won't. Oh, and I gotta—I keep forgetting to do this, and with great apologies. Um, listeners may not, uh, some listeners may recall that for 
a while now, I've been telling the story to whenever we have somebody on who like knows a thing or two about uh, whiskey, I bring up the story about how I was in Atlanta once and I sat next to this guy, nice guy who um, was telling me how he was in the financial world, but he really wanted to move full time towards his passion, which was uh, becoming a distiller. And he told me about how he makes uh, white whiskey and I'd never heard of such a thing. And turns out it was actually vodka. Anyway, he is, uh, his name is Charlie Thompson and he's actually a listener to the remnant and he's listened to me tell this story at his expense many, many times. And, um, and he's still a listener. And so I want to thank him for that. Um, he is also the, I don't know if he's a sole owner or the co-founder or whatever, but he has a distillery now it's called ASW, uh, distillery in Atlanta. And I am not saying that I'm saying all of this simply because he has reached out to the dispatch and offered to send us a sampler of his wares. But I will say that it helped in my decision to do the right thing and apologize to, uh, to Charlie and to give him a shout out on this. And we were very much looking forward, um, to, uh, sampling some of his non-white whiskey. Um, so with that, I'll see you next time.